the conversation is not me, 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 I, I, I. It's here's what I was most proud of when I helped with this project and I saw her shine and get a raise. It's that selflessness and complete focus on your, your team because I, I talent ultimately should be your number one priority as a leader. It's not, it's really just not about you. Welcome to Career Paths with Teal. I'm your host, Dave Fano. In this episode, Eric Martin guest hosts an exciting conversation with Kevin Baradian. Kevin has 20 years of experience in little companies that you may have heard of before, like IBM, ADP, and LinkedIn. And most recently, he was VP of North America Portfolio Sales at WeWork. They discuss how Kevin's early failures were truly character building, career shaping, and how to successfully apply those learnings into becoming a leader. If you were advising someone who was looking for that type of opportunity with a, with an ADP or a company like that, that's really going to invest in the sales training, how do you sort out what's what's really valuable and and what's not from the outside? It's hard, right? It's not like it's not like you can go on LinkedIn and and you can get a comparison of companies based upon the effectiveness of their sales training and development program. I look to people that I have seen be successful, and I ask them kind of where where do they grow up, and we. I see this now when we're recruiting, like, where do they grow up? Where do they, where do they cut their teeth in sales? And it, it always comes back to companies that have invested less in, in kind of driving you off a cliff with a quota and shuffling you out of the business after 12 months and more on companies that are invested in their employees long-term. So one, one really easy way of doing that is, is looking at the average tenure of employees in sales at the organizations you're looking at. And that can give you a sense of like stability, particularly for entry-level sales. Like you need some time to develop your skill set. You need a company to invest in you. And if you see a really high turnover rate, it, it very likely could be like a churn and burn company. And then I think during the interview process, just ask the basic questions. Like what does training look like? Am I going to get thrown in the deep end? And that, that is true whether you are new to sales or whether you're tenured in sales, and you got to learn a new product, um, you've got to learn a new value proposition, you've got to get some time to get your feet wet and in the landscape of the client base. So those, those are a couple things that I would do. I, I think it's about people and it's about you know, really asking questions during the interview process. Uh, I, 80, I look at ADP as, uh, if you want to look at a foundational company that has invested really heavily in training, uh, ADP uh, stands out, LinkedIn stands out to me uh, as companies that, that just invest wholeheartedly into the development of their employees. And in many ways, like the development is company driven, uh, but also your direct manager is going to be certainly like a huge baseline for your success as well. That's saying, yeah, that's great, great advice. I mean, uh, looking at the the average tenure in, in a whatever department you're looking to move into is, is, you know, something, you know, almost everyone should ask, but yeah, especially for sale. Oh, name names, yeah. but we both know where that, that tenure is less than a year. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't mean like, it doesn't mean you can, fail for a year and have safety with your job. I mean, if you get in sales, you know, like oftentimes it's 50, 50, 50% base, 50% variable. Like you basically eat what you kill. So uh, it doesn't give you a free pass, but for a company that says, Hey, your ramp period is going to be 60 days. Here's what our training curriculum looks like. They should be comfortable sharing that with you in advance of joining the company. Um, really dig in and start comparing those. Uh, they, there are a lot of companies out there that are just growing so fast. I've worked for some of them where it's it's not an afterthought. They're just moving so fast. They haven't formalized it. And they also haven't been running the same process for an extended period of time. 
that you're going to have like a different outcome. Uh, each 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 person that joins that company will have a different experience, and I, I think that inconsistency is not always a great work environment. Talking about that sort of early, you know, almost foundational failure, it's definitely something I've seen as well, and 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 had in my own career. But at TIA, we talk with a lot of people that are you know hesitant or they aren't sure how to talk about that. They aren't sure how to talk about you know being fired or or you know even being laid off in a, in a previous position. You know, how would you, you know, how did you frame it or, and how would you advise someone who's, you know, in the job market right now? I think it's fair. I, you know, this is a, I'll answer that two, two parts. One, like in a COVID era, uh, layoffs proliferate, right? My former alma mater, LinkedIn laid off a thousand employees. My cousin was one of them. You know, they laid off entire functions and that this is a company that clearly has enough capital to run the business. So I, I don't, I think it's no harm, no foul if you're laid off. Just in general, if you're laid off, and particularly in this environment, I, I think that that's the starting point to every conversation that I have. I say, hey, like, I, I worked at this company. My role was eliminated. Here's what I'm looking to do next. And that's the end of the conversation. I think it gets a little bit more sensitive when you were fired. Now, there are different reasons to be fired. I think in, in sales, oftentimes you are put on a performance improvement plan. And if you fail to achieve that performance improvement plan, um, you know, you you move out of the business. And, and you do lose your job, um, and then you're fired. Then there are other reasons you can be fired for cause. I won't get into fired for cause because there are a million reasons to be fired. The way I approach it is very humbly, and I take ownership of it. And I think that that resonates in an interview. And the way that I would frame that, for example, is I would say, I made an amazing decision to join XYZ company. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. I was placed on a performance improvement plan and and ended up leaving the business last month. But let me tell you what I learned in that process. And let me tell you where the wins that I did have. And I think framing it in a way that's like humble, taking ownership, acting like an owner of your outcome because you do own it, but also kind of celebrating the things you learned along the way and how you're going to iterate in the next role. And then provided you struck up a strong relationship with your former manager, uh, they should be in a position to actually advocate for you. So for example, and I, I have been on the other end of that spectrum where I'm managing people out of a business that are not performing. And just to quote Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn, like it's one of the most compassionate things you can do. If somebody is not succeeding at a company, you're doing them a favor in many ways by, by moving them out of the business compassionately. I, I give reference references for any employees that have left due to performance issues. Meaning like I will give them, I'll commit to giving them a very strong reference provided they're upfront with their employer and they're not saying, Hey, I wasn't fired. I voluntarily left or I was crushing it and I left. As long as that transparency is there, uh, I think a good manager is going to be comfortable advocating for you, uh, whether or not you left of your own accord or not. And provided it wasn't like a, a, some, some other bigger issue. Yeah, wow. Well, I imagine that, you know, depending on the company and, and, and person, the, per, the hiring manager receiving that reference, that carries a lot of weight if you're like, yeah, it didn't work out here, but they still yeah. have this amazing skill yeah. set. And Some of the reasons people that are ultimately successful in sales fail early on, some of it's their manager, some of it's them, some of it's the environment. Uh, I just, if we're all honest with ourselves, and we say, hey, we're a human being, we want to work, we've got innate skill sets, there's a reason we were hired in the first place. I think shame on you as a manager if you're not willing to go to bat for an employee that's leaving the company um, who didn't succeed because you, you should be taking some of that responsibility yourself. And and I'll give you an example. I, there was a manager that I ended up uh, letting go from a company I worked for the last few years that uh, really wonderful human being, wonderful individual contributor. When this individual moved, moved into management, it was pretty evident in the first six months it was the wrong fit. And he ended up leaving the business. Uh, I, I, I let him go. 
like the, the, I had coffee with him like two weeks after he was let go. And I said, like, how can I help you find a job? And here's what I'm, I'm willing to say about what I valued about your time with our company. Every manager should have some level of comfort doing that. And if not, you probably, you're working for the wrong manager anyway, I'd argue. Yeah, that's a good, a, a good transition there to talk about your, your, your move from being an individual contributor to actually sales management. Cause it's, I mean, I think in every discipline, that's a big jump, but I think especially in sales, you know, it's a different type of skill set. It's, it's, you know, obviously a lot more responsibility. Can you just talk how you made that transition? I'm a late bloomer, right? So I'm 45, shave my head, keep the grays out of, out of the picture here. Uh, I didn't move into sales leadership until my late thirties. So if you are younger than me and many people are, and you're not there yet, hang in there and you'll get there. The, the way I, I transitioned and, and, and the term I'd use is that you should be promoted by your peers before you move into leadership in an ideal situation. And what I mean by that is your peers should be tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, like, here are all the amazing things you do. Have you thought about leadership? You're, in many ways, your manager, I think it's okay to like push your way into leadership, but there should be some signals from your coworkers your peers, your manager, that this is the right move for you. And, and in part, that was why it took me so long. I, I was never ready earlier in life to move into leadership. I, I don't think I had the skill set, the capability, the mentorship. And when I moved, uh, I, just to, for context, I, I joined LinkedIn in 2011, individual contributor running a book of about 75 of their, their mid to large size clients, uh, upsell and renewal. And I did that job for two years and I was successful at it. And I really focused my efforts on developing my peers around me because I was, I was like 10 years older than all of them. Everybody was like in their mid to late 20s. And there was an inflection point where people were asking like, hey, have you thought about making a move to leadership? And I hadn't at that point in time. And as I started investing time with other leaders that I admired and emulated on the company, I knew, I knew it was time. So I think look for, look for the signals in your network, in your peer set that indicate it's right. And notwithstanding that you could be like several folks I've worked with uh, very recently, you could be built for leadership out of the gate. Uh, and I, I'll just reflect on a woman I worked with over the last two years. She was an individual contributor, moved here from California. And I joined the company. She had just been promoted to leadership. And this is like two years ago while I was at WeWork. In a space of 18 months, she went from individual contributor to frontline leader to managing managers to a global leadership role at the company, 18 months. And I, I credit her 100% with that. She's built for leadership. She's got, she's got the mindset, the intellect, uh, IQ, EQ to do that incredibly well. Not everybody does that in their late 20s. So just be patient wherever you are in your career journey and, and really identify those signals. In most cases, if you're not getting those signals from peers, um, especially if you're talking about a leadership position in the same organization, like it's you know, uh, it's probably not going to work out or it's going to be really tough. Totally. Yeah. And the other thing too, is like, I, I, when I interview either aspiring leaders or uh, leaders that are looking to transition to the company, I, I always try to get a sense of like, what do they really care about? Like what is, is their body language about themselves or is it about their teams? And I find that like the heavier the lean towards other people, even if they're an individual contributor looking to move to leadership and the conversation is not me, 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 I, I, I. It's here's what I was most proud of when I helped, you know, Luann with this project and I saw her shine and get a raise. It's that that I think I would characterize as like selflessness and complete focus on your your team. 
because I, talent ultimately should be your number one priority as a leader. Um, it's not, it's really just not you about you anymore. You can absolutely be a, a leader without being a manager. Yeah. And what are, so I guess, what are, what are some ways, particularly in a, in a sales organization that someone who is an individual contributor, but wants to either, you know, uh, uh, take on more so or just be a leader as an individual contributor, um, whether they want to move into leadership or not. What are some different ways, uh, you know, someone in a, in a sales IC can really show leadership on their own team? I'll quote what what LinkedIn defines leadership as, and they define leadership as in, inspiring others towards a shared objective while upholding our culture and values. And it's pretty interesting. Like you can you can dissect that in a couple different ways. One, if you're an individual contributor and you're exhibiting leadership, one way to do that is simply by utilizing the resources you have at your disposal to make yourself more successful. That, that I'd call like 1.0 uh, individual contributor status. And it's a good thing. It's, it's really what you need to do to be successful early on as an individual contributor. The second is exhibiting leadership by driving impact at a team level. And that could be spearheading an initiative related to the team. That could be starting something that kind of catches fire, whether it's like dial for dollar hours, whether it's a cultural initiative, maybe it's you get involved in the recruiting function for the team so you can make the team better by creating a more diverse and inclusive environment. And then the final is like, can you impact at a national level or a global level level in your company as an individual contributor? And I can think of some individuals, for example, that were exhibiting this type of leadership quality by starting like large-scale diversity and inclusion efforts because they realized we had a diversity and inclusion problem. I've, I've seen folks build what we call culture councils from the ground up that ultimately turn into things that change the work environment for everybody at a, at a national and global level. And these are folks that have a day job selling that decide to take these initiatives on and run with them and they get people to kind of join with them. So I think when I define leadership, I think across those three spheres of impact and when, especially when you've been able to impact uh, beyond your team through your efforts as an individual contributor, I think you're ready. Like, like, like that's oftentimes what you're, 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 you're tasked with as a leader, which is like, how do you, how do you have the most impact in your role? Despite the fact that here's your purview and here's your scope of responsibility and here's your quota. Awesome. So Kevin, you've had, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you've had just about every role in sort of a modern sales organization, um, uh, both at, both at large companies, um, big tech companies like LinkedIn, but you've also worked with startups. Uh, at TL, we have a lot of people who are transitioning either industries, you know, moving from nonprofit or, or civic, you know, sort of realms into working for a, a you know, a SaaS tech type company um, or people that have worked at smaller, smaller um, uh, companies. But can you just take us through sort of, um, especially given your experience, what are the basic roles in a, in a sort of modern sales organization? Um, and sort of what, especially if someone was looking at uh, making a decision of which of those type of roles, you know, what, what the key skill sets are for, for each one? Yeah, I, I'll try to get through that succinctly. There are a lot of different roles. So I think starting with what is one of the harder roles that uh, in many ways, means that you've carried carried a bag and you've done that kind of hard, heavy lifting early on in your career and it's sales development. So the SD role or SDR role, as it's called, is effectively the, the top of the funnel for the organization. And that means you're, uh, whether it's outbound or inbound, and sometimes the roles are differentiated, meaning here's a list of companies, go call them until you can get an appointment uh, or identify a lead. Inbound might be 
somebody submitted a web form on the Teal website and is interested in a, a career conversation with somebody at Teal and that SDR role would, would actually return that call. That, that it role is really foundational to understanding um, how you create uh, opportunity by talking to as many folks as you can talk with. That is a pretty entry-level role. That is typically a second job at a college role, sometimes first job, but usually some foundational like selling experience, whether it's retail or some other avenue. That typically branches off into two different categories, depending upon the company. Uh, one is uh, an account executive. And the other I'll characterize as a relationship manager or account manager. And both of these are quota-carrying selling roles. If you're working for a SaaS company that has a recurring revenue model, meaning they sign up for two years and you're responsible for renewing them at the end of year two and trying to upsell them additional products and service, um, both of those roles are sales. Account executives typically, if they're new business, are tasked with acquiring new customers, typically at a lower purchase point. You know, let's say your average deal is $20,000 uh, for a client. Your relationship manager might be working $100,000 deals with clients that have been here for five years. Your account executive is going to be acquiring new customers. So I, I recommend uh, some of this is personality-based. Uh, if, if you are as I was, like my first job was as an account executive when I failed at and got fired from. I pivoted back to new business sales at ADP. And when I came over to LinkedIn, I joined as a relationship manager. I said, you know what? I'm learning the business. Give me some existing clients. I've got great client relationship management skills. And I will use those relationship building skills to, to renew and upsell them. So kind of test, gut test yourself and ask some of your friends that know you well, like, where do you think I would fit better? Like hunting? Um, or and I'll characterize this as farming, but it's it's, it's a lot more difficult than farming sounds. Uh, farmers work very hard as well, and then that turns into a whole host of opportunities to move up the stack in leadership from a sales perspective. So those are I'm hyper simplifying it, but those are kind of the the broad roles. It, uh, depending upon the industry, the roles vary a little bit, but that's how I think about it. How companies these days are are thinking about sales enablement and sort of sales operations as well. It's interesting. There are folks that bounce between sales and the, those roles as well. So. Sales enablement uh, is, for, for lack of a better term, it's like training and development, but uh, it is, it's turned into sales activation over time. So if you get inspired by building tools, processes, training and development, and like getting in front of the larger sales force on a regular basis to, to help them, sales enablement is a really interesting place to be. Every company needs it. Every company has a sales enablement function. It's typically a lot smaller than the sales function. Meaning if you have a hundred account executives, you probably have three people in, in sales enablement. And oftentimes the folks that are recruited to move into sales enablement are former sales reps because they can get up in front. If you can imagine yourself in front of a hundred account executives, that credibility piece out of the gate, which is like, Hey, I've, I've done your job. I've carried a bag. I, you know, ran the mean streets of LA and I had a quota and I had to hit it for 10 consecutive quarters for my last promotion. That credibility goes a long way in them like believing you and listening to you as you help. But uh, it does require some technical expertise, i.e. you're going to be building things like onboarding programs and offboarding programs and a whole host of programs that help the sales team as a whole become more productive. So that's how I think about sales productivity. And then sales operations, another massive failure in my career was I, I decided I wanted a VP level title and I chased a job that I wasn't really strong fit for, which was head of sales operations at ADP. And I got the job. And uh, this is not about me, but, but make sure it's right for you. So sales operations essentially is doing everything else, building quotas, 
solving problems and disagreements, figuring out systems and processes, uh, everything from Salesforce to, you know, how do I report on sales up the stack? And it does require some technical expertise. You, ha- you need to understand the sales team, sales process. And I got a lot of value out of that experience because I know now that it's not something that I want to do. And I want to hire amazing people that are passionate about that better than I am. But it is such a critical role for the team. Uh, the Essentially, the head of sales is sitting side by side with their head of sales operations to run the business. And without the, you're almost like flying uh, without wings or boating without a rudder if you don't have sales operations in place. But there are junior level roles that if you are technical, if you've got Salesforce skills, Salesforce and Excel skills, and you're highly analytical, and you want to come into a starting level role in sales operations, what is cool about it is these roles can transition into sales. I've recruited from analyst programs. I've recruited from sales operations. I've recruited from sales enablement into sales. And in many ways, like the diversity of experience and the diversity of like skill set and aptitude on a team can be really helpful. The last thing you want on a sales team is, is a bunch of the same people. That might work short term. It doesn't work long term. Cool. So, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, sort of client relationship management and that skill set. What else has been sort of a skill that you've had kind of list of the role uh, that you felt pretty, you know, pretty confident about? And and maybe, you know, is, is there also a skill or two that you've you know, had to work a little harder to develop over the over the years, over the different roles? Especially now, like written communication skills are so incredibly important. In fact, I I struggled for years to figure out how I could test for written communication skills in the interview process, given the amount of email, Slack, uh, text communication that's happening, clarity, conciseness, crispness, uh, like the ability to influence with the written word is something that I've really invested heavily in. One way for you to do the same is to put yourself out there a little bit. So, for example, when I was working my way up at LinkedIn, LinkedIn launched their the ability to write long-form posts. So I decided, you know, for the next year, I'm going to write a post every week, a long-form post, which is like a 500-word essay. And I wrote 50 of them over the course of uh, probably up until like 2016. Everything ranging from what, what it's like to be a 40-year-old in a 25-year-old workplace to you know, should you swear at work? And what I found is that by putting yourself out there and like kind of testing your writing skills, you sort of force force yourself to improve. So that that's something that I've really invested heavily in myself, and I continue to invest. You can see I, I read a lot. I think read read a lot, uh, and then try try getting comfortable publishing something, whether it's on Medium or on LinkedIn, and you'll be really surprised how that impacts you. And I'll give you a really quick example of how that can impact you in sales capacity. So I wrote, uh, I moved to London with my wife about six years ago. And when we arrived, our Airbnb was flooded. Airbnb was like, they completely saved the day for us. We were like stranded in the UK. We had no lodging. And I wrote a post about it the minute I landed because they, they were so good at the customer service side of it. I, and it was called how Airbnb saved the day and won a, uh, won a client for life. And my first sales call in the UK with a company I'd never heard of, with a person I'd never met, they, he recognized my name and he said, hey, I think I wrote a, I read a post you wrote about Airbnb. And it just paved the way for a really open, transparent discussion. And we ended up winning the business, not, not directly because of that, but that it opens up doors for you. And I think communication really stands out. Uh, in terms of areas for improvement, uh, it's, a, it's a massive list. I don't want to bore you with it. But I, I think that the, the ability to be decisive with not enough information in every role, uh, 
is is really important and it's it's something that i aspire to get much much better at and what i mean by that is as an individual contributor when you're trying to figure out you know what the next step is what the right thing to say is in front of a client you oftentimes don't have the right information to be able to ask that question um, or to even assert that they should be doing x or to make a recommendation and and that that becomes more and more magnified as you move up the stack so you move into leadership and all of a sudden the decisions you're making about how the team spends their time, you're probably 75% sure what you're asking them to do is the right thing. Like, Hey, I, you know, I want you to have 15 meetings a week. Um, we're going to track these meetings. I'm going to give it a, a prize at the end of the week for people that have the most activity and that's going to turn into a pipeline. Like that's the right thing to do. I don't know. You, you might know after you don't know before. And then as you get to the executive leadership level, you're making decisions with like a fraction of the information you need. So that, that skill set which is like getting as close to the, the amount of information you need to make any sort of decision uh, is, is something I'm not, not great at and trying to get a lot better at. And, and you see people be so decisive in the workplace and you just got to remember not even they, even, even as decisive as they are, they don't know. They just don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, and you got to get a lot of comfort with that. And the reality is like, you're going to have a hit rate where the decisions you make are going to be the right ones sometimes and the wrong ones. And, I just read Jeff Bezos. He wrote his opening remarks to the, the Senate Judiciary Committee, their, uh, the antitrust hearings. You should read them. They came out today. It's fascinating. He tells the story of his upbringing. Like, this is a guy that celebrates failure. So, uh, and Amazon celebrates failure and they want to celebrate the hell out of it because they failed so much and that's why they're successful. So, I, I, you know, I'm going to try to fail more, uh, fail more often and more frequently moving forward. How did you work with the rest of the talent team, applicant tracking systems, if you, you know, were hands-on with those? Just because it's, uh, yeah, there's so many different advice and, and tools people use. Just kind of what was your perspective on, on those? You know, how do you get from 500 applicants to the people you're going to talk to? Incredibly close with talent acquisition. I mean, I spent seven years at LinkedIn selling talent acquisition software to, to companies. So your recruiter should be your best friend. And you really need to partner with them and, and provide them everything they need to, to succeed. I guess that what I'm hearing is like the, the flip side of that question is really on the, on the applicant side. I, was I hearing the question correctly, Eric? Or am yeah, I, I mean, I just want to get applicants, uh, you know, just, just some, yeah, some perspective yeah. from the inside of what it, how people think about it. Yep, totally. So uh, the, just for context, I'll give you just some scale, what you'll be fa- facing. Uh, I, I had conducted about 1,500 interviews in 2018 when I joined WeWork. Uh, grew our team from 20 to 200. We hired about 2 to 3% of overall applicants to the company. So uh, your ability to stand out is really important. The first thing I did, because I t- my typical day was 15 back-to-back 30-minute meetings, Monday through Friday. When I had an interview, uh, if there was a resume, great. I never looked at it. Sounds horrible. Uh, I immediately on my mobile phone looked at their LinkedIn profile. So uh, my advice to you is like, make your LinkedIn profile genuine, authentic, update it regularly and get incredibly active posting what you care about. That defines your brand. And I think that's true for the vast majority of hiring managers. It's just really challenging to consistently look at resumes. So, uh, and then the second piece is that the, uh, the, the, I would treat every single person in the interview process, and this is a bit of a no-brainer, as somebody that could potentially influence you being hired or not. 
And that goes from the administrative assistant who's helping you get to the interview, um, the recruiting coordinator who's helping you out. I, I you know, you, you just layer it on. And it, in many ways, that should be authentic to who you are anyway, which is the way you treat everybody that you interact with. So those are the two pieces of advice I give you. Final piece, uh, it's really on the LinkedIn front. Uh, I, I think invest some time in your headline on LinkedIn. So what I mean by that is like, don't put your title up there. Uh, I, if you look at mine, for example, you'll see mine says rookie dad, uh, rookie dad, people leader, Brooklynite. Like you see that three word phrase and you go, okay, this guy's got a kid. I, now again, there's a, there's some male privilege there for me to be able to say that. And that's an okay thing. So I, I get that, but I, I do say it. Um, uh, I'm a people leader and I live in Brooklyn and you start, you start figuring out who the heck people are pretty quickly without even speaking with them, without looking at their resume. And I, I'd encourage you to figure out what your authentic self looks like on a platform like LinkedIn. Awesome. It's great advice. Also, uh, keep in mind, everyone, he said he looks at it on his phone. So definitely uh, advise everyone to check out your, how, how does your LinkedIn profile, how does your resume, how does it look like on your phone? Because people like Kevin are probably reading it on theirs in the 30 seconds before they're between meetings before they talk to you. So Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just put uh, Kevin's uh, LinkedIn uh, where you can see his headline and read some of his articles and Twitter on there in the chat as well. So definitely uh, uh, he's a great follow. Check that out. Um, but yeah. again, Kevin, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and insights with us. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Likewise, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Career Paths with Teal. Now it's your turn. Do you have an interesting story about your career that you'd like to share? Or would you recommend someone you'd like to hear from? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note by heading to the show notes on this episode for the link to contribute. This podcast is sponsored by Teal, and our job is to help you land a job you love. As a member, you can dive deeper into all the conversations on our show. For information on how to sign up for one of our programs, visit www.tealhq.com. Conversations for this show were facilitated by me, Dave Fano, and Eric Martin. Produced for us by Rainbow Creative by Matthew Jones and Ritu Jagannath. Audio editing by Hammond Chamberlain. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.